1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Zoe, and Zoe was in a 10-year relationship with a conniving narcissistic abuser. It's a story of abusive mothers, tug-of-wars, smear campaigns, isolation, jealousy, addiction, neglect, infidelity, and CPTSD. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Zoe. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I am doing well. And if you want to be a guest like Zoe is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page, and there you can read all of our instructions, and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button, and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today we do have a bunch of content warnings for this episode as we do discuss physical abuse as a child, physical abuse as an adult. There is also sexual assault as well in this episode and suicidal ideation too. So those are your content warnings for this episode. And today you're going to hear uh, Zoe's story. Zoe went through a lot. There's 29 years here of abuse that has gone on, 10 within a relationship, but also all throughout childhood. And this story is, you know, a relationship story, but it is really a story of two in one because there's a tug of war here between the mom who still wants Zoe in her grips and then you know, kind of going into the hands of her abuser and then her abuser reinforcing a lot of what her mom is doing. And then there's this tug of war between two abusers on one person. And we're just happy that Zoe has found her way out and is doing much better now. And just a big thank you to Zoe for being here with us today. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Zoe, the floor is now yours.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to say that first and foremost. Um, My story is a little weird. Uh, It starts out with my mother and I's relationship. I have to kind of explain that before I get into this stuff with my ex. Um, Her and I had a very toxic relationship. And to begin with, it wasn't that bad whenever my younger years, like I did pageants and she was a very active mom and everything. Um, when I was in the pageants and stuff, my grandparents were very involved in that. And uh, my mom at the time was basically a single mother. Um, my biological father had passed away right before I turned two. And about six months after he passed away, um, she found out she was pregnant with my little brother. Um, and he actually did some of the pageants with me. But when my grandparents were involved, I had a lot of confidence. Like my confidence was up to here. My grandparents wanted me to be a professional singer one day. They were getting me in all these vocal classes, like anything they could do to help me out. But it was like once that all stopped and my mom went into nursing school, the pageant stuff kind of died down and stopped for a little bit and It was like once that happened, I started noticing a change in my mom. Um, She acted like she was getting more confident, but at the same time, she had a very toxic relationship with my brother's father. So watching them argue and hearing the things that they would say back and forth to each other, it, it affected me and my brother a lot because they were very, very toxic, very toxic.
1: And what was your relationship like with your brother?
0: He was my best friend. He was my best friend. Um, His name was also Brandon. um, But that was my best friend because I felt like out of the four children that my mom had, him and I were the closest. I have another sister and another brother. But him and I were the closest because his dad wasn't very involved in his life other than for, I guess you could say, appearances to make it look like, you know? Um, And so when my biological father had passed away, it was like me and my brother were kind of in the same boat because even though my dad was taken from me, his dad was still choosing to be an absentee parent. So it was like he wasn't there either. So him and I connected a lot on that.
1: So eventually things change with your mom and it was specifically after she had a gastric bypass surgery and things just really became very much more noticeable when it comes to abuse. So walk us through this.
0: Whenever I was about 12, she had a gastric bypass and they gave her some pretty hefty pain medication after the surgery. And it was like, from then on, something clicked in her and an addiction was formed. And when that started happening, it was like, I don't know, she was fighting a lot of her own demons through her addiction, but it was like when she wasn't getting her way or she didn't have her pills that she wanted that day, a lot of times and I ended up being her punching bag for the day for whatever reason. And so, from that point on, um, I had a major loss in my life. Around that time, my grandfather had passed away. I was really close with him, so when the abuse started, it was it was a lot. It was a lot because there were days where I was in high school and I would have friends and teachers see bruises on me and things like that. And I remember one day, my ROTC instructor actually calling my mom and asking her about the bruises and stuff. And right away she said, oh, well, you know, she's been working out a lot. She's been exercising and running and stuff and she bruises easy. So that's probably where it came from, which most of the bruises did not come from that. It actually come from her punching me or choking me, whatever she wanted to do that day. And of course, because she was my mother, I never hit back. I never disrespected her. I just basically stood there and took it.
1: So the abuse has now really set in. And how are you viewing your mother at this point? How are you feeling? And how does this affect the rest of your family?
0: When my grandfather died, he died right before I turned 12. And it was like, once that happened, my mom and her mom, like, They never really got along to start with, but when a little bit of the abuse started happening right after my grandfather died, my grandmother would try to step in and say, you know, that's not right. You shouldn't treat your daughter that way or whatever. And my mom's even told me that as a toddler, there was one time she remembered she couldn't get me down for a nap and she called her mom talking about, you better come get her before I kill her. So even though there was things that happened that I didn't remember, my grandmother knew about some of the stuff that was going on. But once they got into their big blowout argument, I lost my grandmother. I lost my aunt. I lost my cousins. My cousins, I was at their house every summer. So it was like I lost over half of my family within a year because I lost my grandfather. Then my mom and her mom got into their big thing. So I lost all of my mom's side of the family. And by this time, my mom was married to her third husband, and he took me and my brother in like we were his own, and he raised us. Um, To me, that is my dad. And it just ended up being where once my sister was born, because that was my stepdad's biological child, it was like his family isolated me and my brother it was like because we weren't blood they didn't accept us they didn't accept my mom there were several arguments over that there was a lot of back and forth as to whether or not my stepfamily was even involved in the picture so really around that time like it was just us six basically so a lot of the family members didn't see a lot of what was going on for a long time
1: And did you have any sort of escape for yourself, music, anything like that?
0: Um, Music was a big thing. Um, I would listen to music at night whenever I was trying to go to sleep and just fantasize about different things of how I wanted my life to look and what I wanted to do in my life. And then when I got to uh, high school, ROTC was a very, very big part of my life.
1: And how did the ROTC shape you?
0: Um, That sent me into a trajectory of going into the military. I scored really, really high on my ASVAB testing, which is basically like an SAT for the military. The Air Force was actually wanting to recruit me to be a bomb tech. And I was on that path of doing that and doing the training and all the stuff that I needed to do. And I got to the physical part of where they basically make sure that you're physically fit to serve, basically. And that's whenever I found out that I had a heart issue and the cardiologist would not sign off on me to go into the military. So I really had to do a lot of changes there because that was like my whole my whole life. And so I didn't know really what I was going to do or where I was going to go from there. Now that my plans are not able to happen,
1: so eventually you leave a home at seventeen due to the abuse. So what happens from here?
0: Um. So basically, I had I I had to plan escaping my mom's um I literally crawled out of my bedroom window the night after Thanksgiving it was the morning of black friday and I had my boyfriend at the time come and get me and I went and stayed at a friend's house I stayed there for probably about um 6 months and um something happened one night um while I was staying at her house She was a college professor for UNCW, and after exams, she would take her students out downtown or whatever, and she would always leave her sliding glass door open in case she couldn't drive home and she forgot her keys, whatever. Well, my now ex-boyfriend at that time, the same one that helped me get out of my mom's house, um, him and I broke up uh, because he was... Talking to other girls, that kind of thing, and one night he had been stalking me, and I didn't know it and he had came in through the sliding glass door um while I was in her living room asleep and had raped me um drugged me into her bedroom, her master bedroom, and tried to drown me in the tub um. Really, I don't even remember how I was able to fight him off. All I know is just all of a sudden, it just all stopped. And I gather myself and everything, and I'm bruised from the neck down, Um, just covered in bruises. No, nothing happened to him. Um, I did talk to the law about it, and at that same time, he was already... Uh, going to court for sexual assault on a minor for statutory rape and they basically said that because his family's very prominent where we live at, he wasn't going to get in a whole lot of trouble so basically there was no need for me to file any kind of report is what i was told by the police after that happened um my mom when she found out that i was gone um, she's calling me, texting me, saying that I'm being irresponsible. She's like, You even left your birth control pills, you're being irresponsible. You were the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. I should have aborted you when your grandmother told me to. Like, just all these nasty negative things. And mind you, by this time, I had already been hearing this shit for years. For years. And whenever you're going through that much verbal abuse. It's like, I've heard you, I've heard you uh, mention, or somebody mentioned on another one, it's called hidden bruises. I mean, really. Because once you deal with somebody that will sit there and say the same thing about you over and over and over, you start to believe it. And unfortunately, in my story, that's what my narcissist piggybacked off of. My mom set the stage for that to happen. And I tried moving back home for a little bit. And after I moved back home, about, I would say probably about a month after moving back home, that's when I met my now ex-husband. I was still 17, about to be 18 in like two months. I think it was like around mid-March when we met. And I just have one of those little, mind you, this is 2009, I just have one of those cheapo nokia phones from boost mobile or whatever and so like if i didn't even have a camera on this phone so i couldn't really send pictures i could receive pictures and stuff but they were like this big like you couldn't really see anything but i don't remember the name of the chat room i know it was for single people around my age and I remember he had messaged me first, asked me how I was doing, you know, everything. And about two or three days after just like texting and messaging each other online, he asked if he could have my phone number and I gave it to him. And at this time, it's important to know that I am not 18 and this man has told me that he is 24 okay little age difference not not really big so i'm like okay so we get to talking and the more he's talking to me the more i'm like second guessing the age thing because he tells me that uh he just got divorced 2 years prior and that he's got four kids but he doesn't think the oldest one is his and that he has been clean from drugs for two years. And the only reason why he gave up that information was because I had talked to him about the stuff my mom was going through. And so during this time with the whole stuff with my mom, because she wasn't, or that I noticed, abusive to begin with, and then the pill started, I always thought, okay, it's the drugs. It's gotta be the drugs. That's making people out like this. So he was like, yeah, I've been clean for two years and he's telling me about his kids and how wonderful of a father he is. So I'm like, OK, you got four, like that's a lot of kids to have and you only 24 and you got an ex-wife already. Like to me, that's a lot. I'm just getting out of high school and that's not that much older than me. So we talked some more and two weeks in, he actually told me he loved me. And the way he did it was kind of off the wall. We were getting off of the phone for my phone call. And as we were getting ready to hang up, he said, I love you. And then hung up. And I I thought I heard him say that. So I call him back and I'm like, did you really just say that? And he was like, well, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, but I just heard you. Like, I want to see if you man enough to say it again. You already said it one time. He was like, yeah, I said it. I was like, okay. Hesitant because at this point, uh, from what he's told me about himself, his dad has a lot of money, multimillionaire. He has sent me pictures of the 12,000 square foot house that they live in, uh, the cars, all this stuff. And the whole time, my mom is in my ear saying, but that, those can be lies. He can get pictures of any house off of any real estate website. Like, you don't know for a fact that this is actually his stuff. And even if it is, it's his dad's. It's not his. But he would like to brag that he was going to be a multimillionaire when he turned 50 because he was going to get his inheritance. So we talked up until May when it was coming towards my birthday. And he already knew a lot of the stuff that was going on in my house, a lot of the stuff that I was dealing with at home, things like that. Uh, we were pretty open with each other as far as I knew. And he was supposed to come down the weekend of my 18th birthday and see me for the first time, us actually be able to meet, because I already knew he was in Connecticut. So the day before he's supposed to leave to come to my come down to me at Radio Silence all day. Now, mind you, for the last two months, we've been talking damn near all day, every day, whether by phone or through text message. And all of a sudden, it's like radio silence. I just talked to him the night before. and He was like, oh, yeah, I got all my stuff packed. I've got everything ready. All this kind of stuff. And then it's like nothing. Just ghosted for over 24 hours. Now, here it is the day that he's supposed to be coming down. And I'm still not hearing anything, nothing. So I'm like, okay, this is kind of weird. I don't know what's going on. Like, he's supposed to be down here. I don't know what's going on. And it was probably, I would say, Monday, Tuesday before I heard from him again. And he tells me this, I guess you call it far-fetched. Hindsight, as you call it, <laughs> far-fetched, but he had told me that he was in jail all weekend and he had got arrested. And I said, Well, what what happened? And I said, You know, I just talked to you the night before, everything was fine. Like, what the hell happened in such a little amount of time that you ended up in jail? And he was like, Well, I was uh taking a friend home and I got pulled over because a cop thought I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And they searched my car and found crack in my car. Okay, but I thought you said you've been clean for two years while they find crack in your car. Like, that's your drug of choice. Like, come on now. And he was like, oh, no, no, it was my friends. He must have left it in there after I dropped him off. I ignored it. And I said, okay, maybe he's telling the truth. Tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. After that, we were like, okay, so are we going to meet up? Like, what's what's the deal? And he was like, well, I really want to come down and see you, you know, have this connection with you. I've never felt this way with anybody before. And I really want to get to know you, you know, typical stuff. And finally he comes down in about June, July, somewhere along in there. And I see him for the first time. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, there's no way he's 24. And as soon as we meet, I asked him, I said, like, we get in the car and everything. I said, so there's no way you're 24. Like you just basically did all this stuff under false pretenses. Like what's your end game? He's like, well, I'm really 34, but I didn't tell you that because I didn't think you want to talk to me anymore. Being that I'm that much older than you. Well, Here again, with all the stuff going on at home, at this point, I'm ignoring every red flag that there is. Because it's somebody giving me some kind of attention, some kind of affection. He's showing me respect because he even asked if if it was okay for him to hold my hand. So I'm like, okay, age ain't nothing but a number. There's a big age gap in my grandparents. Maybe this could work. We can at least get to know each other. I guess you could say on the one hand, I had my mom in my ear saying, this could be a lie, that could be a lie, this could be a lie, that could be a lie. So me being a teenager, that pushes me more towards that person. And I was being rebellious, but I just liked the attention from him because that was the only way I was getting it. And he validated me a lot. And I think that was a big part of it is because once I told him what was going on between me and my mom, it was, you're not crazy. That is abuse. Because, mind you, there was an instance where DSS had been called and nothing was done with my mom. And my family at that time was just starting to see what was really going on. But nobody was stepping in and doing anything. And so for him to come in and be like, yes, you're being abused. That's wrong. Your mom shouldn't do that. Your mom should love you unconditionally. And so with that, with him validating what I was going through with my mom and nobody else had done that yet, that was a really big thing for me. So here I have my mom on the one hand, that's only giving me attention when I do something negative, but I got him on the other hand, that's showing me positive attention and everything where I'm not getting it at home.
1: So this is the beginning of what will be the tug of war between two abusers and you being stuck in between the devil you know and the devil you don't. And each can abuse you, but also each over time will actually validate or point out things And that makes sense about the other abuser, which just adds a different level to the confusion of everything. So after this meeting with the abuser, walk us through what happens from here.
0: Well, we stayed here in North Carolina for a couple of months, and then we ended up going to Connecticut because he wanted me to meet his parents, his kids all that stuff. But prior to us going to Connecticut, literally, and it was so weird because I I slept with him the first night that we met and I had never done that before. I was never one to do that. Anytime I did have any kind of relations like that with somebody, it was somebody that had either been my friend for a really long time and we had been together for at least over a year before I did anything. So for me to go ahead and jump right in with him, that said a lot for me personally. And that next morning, he's sitting outside on the porch, smoking a cigarette and I come out and he was like, uh, I got to tell you something. I'm like, okay, what, what do you got to tell me? Cause I'm thinking that I know everything. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, don't tell me he's going to tell me that he's still married, something. And He pulls out his driver's license out of his wallet. He's 44 years old. So 27 and a half years older than me. But by this time, he's already got me on the hook. So here again, he's like, but age ain't nothing but a number. Like, it's not that serious. I've I've connected with you more than I have anybody else. And all this other stuff. So he gets me to go back to Connecticut with him. And of course, his parents pick us up in a really nice BMW. It was a 760 or something. I can't remember. Um, And so my first thought was, okay, the cars are real. So that wasn't a lie. Even though he's lied about his age, that wasn't a lie. Okay, get in the car. Go to his house. Mind you, I've never been to Connecticut in my life. And we get out and I see his house and I'm like, okay, so the house is real. So in my head, I'm like, Mom, you ain't been right about everything. You was the one that was telling me that he could be lying and everything. So that pushed me towards him even further because my mom was saying, be careful, it could be a lie. He could be lying to you. She didn't want me to go to Connecticut because of that. So that night I call her, I'm like, mom, the money's real. The house is real. The cars are real. I didn't give two shits about money. It wasn't his money to begin with. It was his dad's. I grew up without money. I grew up very poor. So money wasn't nothing to me. And I'm like, but you know, all this stuff he's told me was the truth. So in a way, like I said, that kind of pushed me more towards him because my mom was trying to say all these negative things and it turned out to be true and not a lie. So now I'm thinking, okay, now I can trust him and rely on him more than I can my mom, obviously. And so I met his parents. I never, still to this day, I never understood why they didn't say anything because his parents, when, we, when I met them, they were in their 60s. And so they never said a word about the age difference. The only thing they ever said, well, as long as you guys are happy, we're fine with it. I mean, I get that back when they were younger, it was no big deal for an older man to marry a younger woman. But I would think her being an educator and somebody that dealt with abuse victims and stuff, she would have caught on to that a little bit more, but not so much. And I remember I was probably there for about two weeks and my mom had went online, found his parents' information, their phone number and all, and actually called his mother and was like, do you know how old my daughter is? Your son is a cradle robber. He's a predator. All this other kind of stuff. They get into this big blowout and that was the only time they ever had any contact in the 10 and a half years of marriage that we were together ever they hated each other that much because in my mom's eyes my mom was like how can you be okay with this especially with the age difference and then when my mom finds out that he in fact has kids that are around my age his oldest child is older than me and his eldest daughter is the same age as my brother maybe three and a half four years younger than me and so my mom was like how is how is nobody saying anything about this but me so because nobody else was saying anything about it but my mom and we know how negative and all that stuff that she is so of course I'm not listening to anything she has to say it keeps pushing me closer and closer to him because here again even his mom was like your mom shouldn't treat you like this This is abuse. It's not right. So have more validation. So my mom and I actually had quit talking after that for a while because she was just like, if you're going to choose him, then I don't want you bringing him around the younger kids and stuff like that. I don't feel comfortable with him being around your sister and that kind of thing. So that started that toxicity between those two.
1: So eventually you tried to leave like five to six months after you got together with him. So what happened from here?
0: Um, After I had been there for maybe about two or three months and he seen that I was getting comfortable by this time, me and my mom are not talking because of that. I'm not having a whole lot of talking in relationship with even my dad and my brother. And we, always talk whether me and my mom were fighting or not but this time was different my mom wasn't really allowing anybody else especially my other siblings or my dad to have any kind of things to do with me as long as I was with my ex-husband so by this time he's got me completely isolated from all of my family I have met most of his family met his kids Met the ex-wife. The ex-wife even tried to warn me, but I didn't listen. Um, to me, the things that she was saying it and what I was being told by my ex and by his family was two different stories. And so I kind of felt like, okay, maybe she's the jealous ex-wife because he's with somebody, you know, so I didn't really listen to it. And it was probably a month after she warned me he would go missing for a day. Then it would be a couple of days. Then it would be a week. And every time he's going out and using drugs after he's done told me that he's clean. So he's relapsing and spending upwards of thousands of dollars on drugs in a short amount of time. Uh, He ended up selling two cars that his dad had bought him for drugs. And that was the sole reason why I tried to leave the first time, because it seemed like every couple of weeks he would go missing. He was lying to me and his parents about jobs that he supposedly had, because I remember this one job tells everybody he's a certified chef. And he was supposed to be working at this really nice restaurant at the next town over. and. Me and his parents decided, okay, well, why don't we go eat there? We've never ate there. He's at work. We'll go see him. We'll see what this is all about. We get to the restaurant. We sit down. The waitress comes up. We're ordering our stuff. And his mom was like, You know, is he back there? She's like, I don't know anybody by that name. And his mom's like, No, he's supposed to be working here. He's been working here for like a couple weeks now. She's like, No, she said, I remember him interviewing, she said, but he did not get the job because of his background. And so come to find out he was out doing drugs and whatever during those times. So he had been lying to me and his parents about various jobs and things that he was doing. Um, and I just got to the point where I was like, okay, I just left one house that had these same issues. Now I'm here at this other place. It's got the same issues. Me and my family are not talking at all. So at this point, I'm feeling very isolated and alone again. Because now I know I can't trust him. But he waited until I got there. and got isolated from my family in order for him to show that side.
1: So eventually you get pregnant. And after you get pregnant, you get married and then you want to move back to North Carolina and he comes back to North Carolina with you. Uh, so once you get back to North Carolina, what kind of stuff starts happening there?
0: Well, the whole reason why we got back to North Carolina was because I basically told him that he was either a drugs or his child. If he chose to stay in Connecticut with the drugs, he would never see his child. So that's what kind of motivated him to move back to North Carolina. And at this point, me and my mom are trying to work on our relationship because this is her first grandbaby. She wants to be involved. So she's basically like, you know, if he don't want to come with you, we'll come and get you. You know, we end up moving back down together and. We end up having to stay with my parents for about a month or so for, in order for us to find our own place. And right off the rip, him and my mom were button heads about how my delivery was going to go, who was going to be in the room, how he was going to be raised, like all this stuff. And I had already felt like then that it was kind of a tug of war control of who wanted control over me and what I had going on. And so once I ended up going into labor with my oldest son, by that time, my mom had had enough. She wasn't getting along with my ex and his delivery was very traumatic because of that. Um, My mom tried to come to the hospital to see me. He refused to let her in, actually called security to have her removed and told the hospital not to allow her into birthing wing at all and um, I ended up having to have an emergency c-section because he was in fetal distress mind you before the emergency c-section I'm in labor for 36 hours and he's over there asleep and he didn't even go to the back with me for the c-section at all my grandmother ended up going back there with me um and When my oldest son was six weeks old, he comes, my ex comes home and says, well, I've hurt my back. I've got to go to the emergency room. I hurt my back at work. So now he's saying he's got a back injury going on and saying that he can't work and coming to me and saying, well, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work. So I'm barely out of my healing period for the C-section and I'm having to go back to work because here we have this child and regardless of what's going on, he comes first and I have to take care of him. And at this time we were living with my grandmother. So we didn't even have a place of our own. And honestly, when we were living with my family members, the abuse and stuff wasn't as bad because He didn't want them to see, I guess, how he really was. He very much had this facade about him and that you would see the real him behind closed doors, but never in front of anybody else.
1: And what was he like behind closed doors?
0: Very much like my mom. The only difference is that he never put his hands on me. He tried whenever uh, we split up, but... That was the only difference. He was very much, um, I was a bitch. Um, I'm conniving, uh, worthless, um, selfish, you name it. I've been called
1: it. And are you believing it?
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because now I've got somebody else that's co-signing on what my mom says. So now you've got this thing where, because now your mom's saying it. And in my head, Mind you, my brain isn't even fully developed at this point. I'm only 19 years old and got a brand new baby. And so in my head, I'm kind of like, okay, my mom treats me like this. So this must be okay. And it must be normal because nobody's doing anything to stop it. And now I've got a husband that's now co-signing on everything she's saying. But yet on the other hand, he says, oh, well, what she's doing is saying is abuse. But yet. He's saying the exact same things that I'm worthless, that uh, I'm selfish, that I'm a bitch, that I'm conniving. I'm manipulative. I'm the most vile, disgusting human being he's ever met.
1: How are you able to function?
0: Hmm. I was very much an autopilot for close to a decade. Um, And I was basically doing what I had to do to get by and to survive and protect my child and do for my child as much as I possibly could. Um, feeling very much defeated in a lot of ways and very depressed, um, I had very bad postpartum depression after my first son was born, but nobody noticed it or said anything about it. And so after I had my second son, it's like it came out and hit full force. Like it was, it was bad. It was bad.
1: So you mentioned here that you had a second child. Mm -hmm. So I guess walk us through. You know, what happened here, you know, after your second child was born and how the abuse continued and how, you know, the trap that you're in just becomes a deeper trap, really. You know, you're caught here between, you know, one person who's abusive your whole entire life and this other person who is now abusive, who's comes in as the rescuer and is still trying to kind of portray the other person as the enemy, you're in a tug of war of control and it's uh, you're being ripped apart. You just really are being ripped apart in half.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, and, and, and the other thing too, I want to mention is that even though me and my mother had a toxic relationship and very much uh, talking, not talking, talking, not talking, Mind you, he's consistently verbally and emotionally abusing me. And yeah, I would get a break from my mom, so to speak, when we weren't talking. But when we were talking, it was both of them at the same time. And like I said, it was very much the tug of war where she wanted me to do one thing, but he wanted me to do another. And it actually, when my oldest son was about eight weeks old, it got to the point where it turned into a physical brawl in my grandmother's kitchen. All because my ex didn't want my family coming to see our son. Like, they, (laughs) it was bad. They were physically fighting each other. My mom and my aunt ended up getting into a physical fight. And so, there was a lot of toxicity Within the family and dysfunction, um I I have no self esteem even now. There's uh, there's things that both him and my mother have said that will probably take me years to get over, just because it was said so many times and so often. And I know that he would he had no qualms about fighting in front of the children. He did not give a damn about calling me any of these names or even so much as disrespecting me with yelling and cussing at me. He It did not bother him to do it in front of the kids. So my sons very much saw a lot of it, even though they may not have understood it. They still saw it. Um, and when we were in our own place, it was much worse, much worse. Um, And to begin with, when we first moved down North Carolina, we couldn't consistently stay in our own place. We were in and out of our own place and back and forth between my mom's house and my grandmother's house. When I was when we lived at my mom's house. And my son, my oldest son was probably about one, one and a half. I don't even think I found out I was pregnant with my second son yet. My mom calls me at work, and she's like, you better come get your husband because I'm me and him is about to throw down. I'm like, what's going on? What's wrong? She's like, I was out going to the grocery store. She said, I come home. He is in the back of the house. Mind you, this house is five bedrooms, and it's a double-wide trailer, so it's really freaking long. He's at the other end of the trailer asleep, and my mom finds my one-year-old head first in her garden tub with the water running. So right then when I got home and I asked him about it, he said, no, I was awake. I was awake. I was about to go in there, but I didn't want to go in your mom's room. I didn't want her accusing me of anything or starting anything. So I didn't go in there, like basically trying to cover up and make it sound like my mom was making this Big mountain out of a molehill, basically. And so that was one of the first things where my mom was like, yeah, y'all can't sit here anymore. You need to find your own place. So when I was pregnant with my second son, we were staying at my grandmother's. And she ended up changing the locks on the house while we were out one day and didn't tell us. Uh... She said it was because he had lied to her about something dealing with his SSI because he had just got approved for the supplement security income from disability or whatever from his back injury. And she said that something about we had lied about it, which I never actually knew what she was talking about until much later. And so when that happened, we were hopping from hotel to hotel until one of his friends that he had in the drug world. Cause even though he was clean from crack, he was still on opioids from his back and he would buy, sell them, trade them that kind of thing. So he kept a lot of people around us that shouldn't have been around us. And one of his friends through that had, Offered us to stay where we were with them until we got a place to live. Well, because we did that, my grandmother had reported us to child protective services. And they got involved, labeled us as homeless, and so that time was very hard. Um, because at one point he had actually. <laughs> actually had said why don't we give the boys to cps until we get our together basically and cps was like well if you want to do this your mom is willing to take them and she can take care of them until y'all get on your feet well i didn't trust her to give me the boys back so that was the one thing i did stand up to him against because i wasn't giving up my kids because i knew even though i was would have been doing it i guess you could say voluntarily but not voluntarily because he would have been making me do it because i did not want to do it it would have been much harder for me to get them back it would have been a major uphill battle and thank god cps had said well we've got this program where the housing authority gives us X amount of vouchers per year for emergency situations for you to get housing. So we were able to get on the Section 8 program through that and able to get our own place. This was the first time that we could actually get our own place and have it our own place consistently. Because up until this point, We maybe were six months in our own place before we would have to move back in with family because he would say what money went where and what got paid and what didn't. And nine times out of 10, our bills were not getting paid. And he was just buying whatever he wanted instead of taking care of the kids and household things that should be taken care of or saving money in order to get our own place. He's not doing anything as far as to help support the kids. In any kind of way, he's classified himself as the stay-at-home stay dad at this point. Um, when we did get our first place through the Section 8 voucher, uh, there was a family dollar that was opening up like literally right behind us. And he actually took it upon himself to go and talk to the manager about getting me a job because he wanted me to work there. So, I didn't have to go anywhere else. He would be able to come and walk over and see what I was doing and that kind of thing. And we didn't have a car at the time because he sold it for money, for bills.
1: So, he is a a drug addict. Yeah, he is what he is. And there is no consistency. In anything that's going on, there's no responsibility for anything that's going on. He cannot be trusted even taking care of a child who's near a bathtub or in a bathtub. Things that are major things that that are now all being put on you. Also, at this time, you're we haven't mentioned you're having major surgeries at this time. You have a hysterectomy. You have a surgery on your kidney and your bladder at this time or during all of this as well. And then eventually when you, you, you get a job, you know, he wants to be able to check on you. You then get a promotion, uh, at a different store, which he makes you walk out on because he couldn't check on you there. Cause it was a further, uh, like it was a further distance away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- and, you know, eventually, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens, At at what job you're at, because he's now just going to be accusing you of cheating or talking to other people. And this type of control kind of starts setting in when you actually are moving into your own freedom here of some sort, where like before he kind of had you, but now you're, you know, even though you're dealing with all your kids. Your, your health, your mom, him, having a job sounds peaceful. That was an
0: escape. That was an escape. Yes. No matter what job I was doing.
1: So this is where like control was already taking place. But now we're talking about like a type that you hadn't seen a hundred percent before, you know, before it was a tug of war between him and your mom. Now it's a tug of war between him and the outside world and your freedom. So after hearing that, you know, where does your story go from here?
0: 2018, Hurricane Florence hit and the house we were living in, the roof caved in because of water damage from a previous storm. And so we had to switch to another unit within the little housing community that we were in. And once that happened, shortly thereafter, um, got a phone call from my mom on October 15th. And at this point, I hadn't talked to my mom in over a year because um, my ex had got a bunch of pain medication for my dad because my dad was on pain medication as well because he was missing half of his foot due to a work-related injury, and. My ex owed my dad like $500, I believe, and was refusing to pay him back. So that started a big thing. And I remember I had just got off of work. I was working third shift at the time at a job I really, really loved working with kids. And my mom calls. And first she calls my phone. I didn't answer. Then she calls his phone. And she tells him, she's like, look, this is serious. I need to talk to her, like, put her on the phone. And that's when my mom tells me that my brother and my best friend have been found dead in his truck. My brother was battling his own addictions, but at the time he had been clean for over six months. Um... And they were trying to label it as a drug overdose. So to this day, I still really don't know what happened to my brother. Um, I have my suspicions of what happened, but suspicion ain't proof. Um, And then it wasn't even a week later, I'm at work and I get a call from my sister at three o'clock in the morning saying that they found my mom in her bed unresponsive. And they took her to the hospital and she had had a complication from a back surgery that she had had six weeks prior to. She had gotten an abscess on her spinal cord and it caused her to throw a couple of blood clots and have two major strokes at the same time. So she was on life support and everything. And the doctors finally told us that she wasn't going to come back from it. Her stats were dropping. The life support was basically doing all the work for her and we ended up losing her on the 29th of October literally 2 weeks after my brother and i have to say this was probably the begin the in, the beginning of the end for him and i um because he did not support me in any way of the grieving process for either one of them and so I noticed myself being really angry a lot for no reason. And I didn't like feeling like that. And so I would come to him and I'm like, you know, there's things we need to work on. Like, we need to work on this. We need to work on that. Like, I'm feeling angry all the time. I don't know what's going on, but we really need to, like, try to figure this out. And, of course, anytime I brought any kind of thing to his attention of something we needed to work on, he would fix it for a week or two you know, the typical cycle. And then as soon as I got back comfortable, it started right back up again, the abuse and everything else. And the beginning of 2019, I was able to take my tax money and actually buy me a car and put it under my name. So this way he couldn't do anything with it without my say-so. It couldn't be taken away from me. For that year, from 2019 to 2020, I was trying my damnedest to figure out a way out. Um, I had went to my dad and I talked to him and told him that, you know, the exact same things and that I felt like I was finally ready to leave because there had been times where I had tried to leave in the past and it just, it never worked out for one reason or another. And he would always tell me, Oh, you, you, You're not going to leave me because nobody's going to want you with two kids. Nobody's going to want you with two kids and you're stuck with me. And it was weird because the running joke was he felt like, well, I guess it wasn't a joke to him, but he felt like I was going to end up leaving him for a younger man. So the age gap between us played a big part in a lot of the accusations And he's like, I feel like you're going to find me, you know, finding another younger man that works. And that's all it would take because I can't work, you know, the woe is me pity party type thing. But yet he would always make jokes to people and to his friends that once I turned 25, he was going to trade me in for a younger model. There was comments that were made about the sexual assault that I had endured in high school, at school. Um, and he would make comments about the race of this particular person and that kind of thing. Um, that was the running joke. So at about mid 2019, at this point, I'm feeling at the lowest I can absolutely feel. And it's to the point where I was, I was thinking about taking myself out um and for me to be thinking like that after all this stuff that I had already been through before I even met him and I never once that never once crossed my mind but I get with him and all this stuff happens and all of a sudden I'm thinking that way so for me I'm like wait a minute This isn't, this can't be normal. Like I've done, went through all this other shit in my life and never once did I ever have that thought. And now I'm having that thought. This is a problem. And what was crazy about it is that I remember the night that I was thinking about, I was in the bathroom floor and I had a bottle of 15 milligram morphine in my hand. And a really good friend of mine who just so happens to now be my significant other, um, out of nowhere, texted me. Normally, this person would not text me first. They would wait for me to text them because they knew how my ex was and how he would react to me talking to other people, especially a male. He was very jealous. so. And it wasn't that I was sneaking around or cheating or anything like that. The reason why I kept that relationship so secret for so long was because that was the one relationship that my ex could not control. If he didn't know about it, he couldn't control it. And this person texted me and he was like, I don't know why, but something just told me to text you and see if you're okay. And that's why I told him. I said, I'm not okay. I'm nowhere near okay. And he even said, he was like, look, if you're thinking like that, that's not healthy. He was like, your husband is a narcissist. He's like, I've seen him belittle you. He's like, I mean, him and I've gotten into it before from him calling you names and stuff. He said, what he's doing to you is not right. He said, it's nowhere near right. And I had never even really heard the term narcissist until he said it. And I looked up the definition for it and I'm like, they might as well put his damn picture next to this definition because he's textbook. And so that's when things really started to click after I looked up the definition for narcissist, because now I'm thinking back to all these red flags that I've done missed and all these things that have happened and everything. And now I see why. So, he's never going to change. So, me sitting here for now over a decade has done no good, and it's not going to do any good. And I could not see continuing to subject my kids to that. And I remember this one incident that this really was the icing on the cake. And here again, I was at work. These things are happening while I'm at work. Um. And I have been told by my mother and my grandmother that certain things are happening with the kids while I'm at work where he's not properly caring for them. He's sleeping all the time. But of course, nobody in my family likes him. So I'm not really hearing what they got to say. But this day, this day, I remember I was going back to work and I looked up and I said, mom, you were fucking right. I hate to say it, but she was right. By then she was gone. But I was at work and I called him on my lunch break, as I typically did, because that was his thing that he wanted me to do. If I didn't call him by a certain time, he was texting me and blowing up my phone, thinking that I'm talking to somebody else or doing something I shouldn't be or whatever. So I called him. And my son's answered the phone. And at this time, they're my oldest is maybe five, and my youngest is like two, three years old. And they are crying so hard that I can barely understand what they're saying. Like they're doing the, you know, kind of when they're crying where they can't catch their breath. And I'm like, slow down. Like what's, what's happening? What's going on? And finally my oldest calms down enough to where he's like, mom, we are locked in the room. We can't get out. I'm like, where's your father? We don't know. We've been banging on the wall. We've been banging on the door. We, we can't get out of the room. And their bedroom and our bedroom was separated by a wall. So if they were banging on the wall, you would be able to hear it in our bedroom. So I'm like, okay, just hold on. I'll be there in a minute. Mind you, this job that I'm at, I'm a C- I'm a CNA, and you're not supposed to leave the premises during your shift. You could lose your license for that. And luckily, my med tech was ni- nice enough to say, yeah, go ahead and go do what you got to do and just come back. I went to my house and I was maybe five or six minutes down the road. And I'm not going to lie. I broke every fucking speed limit getting there. I know I did. And I know I probably ran out light, a red light or two. Um, and I'm on the phone with my sons the whole time. And I'm like, calm down. I'm almost there. I'll be there in a minute. I get to my house and I open the front door. There's nobody in the living room. And I get to the boy's bedroom. I can still hear them screaming and hollering through the door. And I opened the door and I got them out. And what had happened was it was solely an accident as far as them being locked in. But what he did during this was what got me because they had just painted the door, their door frame. So it stuck when they shut the door because the paint wasn't dry enough. And so it stuck. And I asked him, I said, Well, how long have y'all been in here? And my oldest son said, Well, we watched um a movie that was probably a good hour and a half long um because they told me what movie they watched and they typically watch this movie and they said after the movie was over they tried to come out and couldn't come out and they've been banging on the door and everything ever since up until the time i called i go in our bedroom he's in our bedroom sound asleep has no clue what was going on And I fling open the bedroom door. I'm like, our kids are locked in their bedroom and you're in here sound asleep. Like, are you serious? And he tells me, oh, I didn't hear him banging on the wall or nothing. I'm sorry, I didn't hear him, you know, trying to brush it off. And it was like, no, mm -mm. now I know everything that my mom tried to tell me was true. Now I'm seeing what's going on when I'm not at work or when I am at work. And so come to find out when I would be at work, he would be sleeping most of the time. And he wouldn't get up until probably about 30, 45 minutes before I was due to get off of work. And then he would get up and cook or clean or do whatever with the boys to make it look like he had been doing stuff and taking care of them, taking care of them the entire time. And really he hadn't. He had a bad habit of basically giving them giving them a bag of Doritos and putting them in front of a TV or giving them a phone or something. And that was it. He had so much control at this time, like the boys weren't even in school. And what school I did have them in, I found out that he was doing the work for them instead of taking the time to sit down with them and help them through it because they were doing online school at the time. So he wasn't even helping them as far as their education, raising them, nothing. And by this point, it's gone too far to me. And so, probably about a couple of weeks after that happened was when I started talking to my dad about coming up with a plan to leave because i I was just over it. I felt the lowest that I had ever felt in my entire life. I finally saw what he was doing with my kids when I wasn't there, and I didn't like what I saw at all and i just i i reached my breaking point and I had had enough. And I remember coming home from work and sitting down on the couch to talk to my ex. And we had already been having issues in the couple of weeks prior to this because he, the boys got locked in their room. I've done been accused of cheating. I don't know how many times he's done said that he could check me to see if I have been cheating um, and I told him, I said, Hey, you know, we got some, we got some stuff to work on. Like, but I need a break. Like we need to take a step back. I need a break. I already knew in my head, once I walked out that door, I wasn't coming back, but I couldn't tell him that not right there face to face. Cause I, I knew how he would react. So I told him, I said, well, you know, we're, me and the boys are going to go spend a couple of days with dad. He's in the next town over, next county over, not that far. I said, we're going to go spend some time with dad. We need a break, you know, to work on things just to see where we're at. And we got at my dad's. And for the first couple of days, him and I talked. And I would have to say, honestly, during this situation was when I had to put my mask on and play a role, so to speak, in order for me and the boys to get out of there somewhat safely, <laughs> I guess you could say. And we were talking and he was here again, same old song and dance. I'm going to change. Things are going to be different if you just come back. Well, as soon as I said, you know, well, we're not coming back just yet because we still have conversations that need to be had, things that need to be worked on. We need to do this without the kids being involved. So we need to work on us if we're going to do this. I knew I wasn't coming back, but I wasn't about to tell him that. And when that was said, he texted me and said, you ever come back to this house, I will chain you up in it and you will never leave. And I believed him. I believed him. Um, Because he's made threats like that before. He's threatened to beat people that I was hanging out with, with a baseball bat. You know, different things. Very jealous. Very um, possessive, you could say. Um, It was his way or no way. And so I told him that I wasn't coming back, and that's when he made that comment. And about, I'd say probably about two weeks after I left, he actually, and I did not know this, he had actually gotten other people involved in this situation. He actually went to a church that he had us going to and got the preacher there involved and had the preacher bring him to my dad's house when my dad wasn't there and approached me and was, well, we need to talk about this. You know, preacher wants to, to help us work on this and help us talk about this and work through this. Like, what, what do we need to do to work through this? I said, I'm not talking to you like this is we're not doing it this way. This is not the way to do it. Well, he goes back to the vehicle and the preacher comes out he was like why can't we work this out why can't we do this I said what has he told you and he said well he basically told me that y'all had things that y'all need to work on and that y'all were separated so I'm here to help y'all work on them things I said okay did he tell you about how he neglects our children or did he tell you about how he's called me a bitch he's called me the c-word he said I'm a cheater like did he tell you about all that And he's like, no. I said, okay, well, then it sounds like you and him need to have a conversation before you come having one with me. So it was like the next week after that, I had went into his Facebook account because something told me that all these accusations were being made for a reason. And you know, the typical rule is, is that if somebody's accusing somebody, usually the one doing the accusing is the one doing something they ain't supposed to. So I got into his Facebook account and I found all these conversations of all these different women, women that he had known in his past, either from going to school with them or being in and out of rehabs, whatever the case may be. All these women where he's either telling them how unhappy he is in the marriage or that I have left him by himself with the kids and that lie had been told for two or three years prior to me actually leaving and then i also find out that that lie was not only told to other females to get sympathy from them but he was also telling this same lie to the social security administration to food stamps and to medicaid in order to get the maximum amount of benefits for the boys He's leading everybody to believe that I left him with the boys by himself. And that day when I found all those messages between him and the females, I'm not going to lie, I lost it a little bit because I went straight to our house from my dad's. And I still had a key to the house. And I whipped open that door. I snatched the iPhone out of his hand that I had paid for and gave to him. And as soon as I did that, he grabbed my arm. And left a bruise on me. And I remember getting really, really pissed off at this point. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I got a decade's worth of anger pent up. A decade's worth of accusations. And name calling. And all this other stuff pent up for you to be behind the scenes. Doing all of this stuff that you're accusing me of and giving me hell over. And As he's got my arm, he's trying to pull me closer to him. My sister's in there. My dad's on his way up the stairs at this point. And I remember my sister saying, let her go, let her go. And the next thing I know, when he pulled me closer to him, I swung as hard as I could right for his face. And he moved back and I punched the freezer and left the dent in About broke my hand. And I told him then, I said, I want a divorce. I am done. And of course he's, what are you talking about? I don't know what you, what are you talking about? Why are you saying this? I thought we were doing good. Yeah, that was before I found all the messages from all these females that you've been talking to. I'm done. And then that's when the whole one day it was things will change. I'm sorry, we can be better Then the next day, it was, I was the most vile, disgusting human being he's ever met, that all his other ex-wives were 10 times better than me, that I'm the worst person he's ever been with, the ugliest person he's ever been with, just all these things. And at this point, I'm trying to go no contact. And my dad is like, you know, why is he still staying in the house when all that stuff's under your name? He said, you know, you could be using that voucher for you and the boys to get your own house. He's like, he shouldn't be staying there and y'all are getting a divorce. Well, as soon as I started looking into what I could do to get his name off of all of my stuff, um, that's whenever he gets up with me and says, oh, I've been to the housing authority and talked to our caseworker And they're saying we have to pay, like, oh no, it's right at $450 worth of the rent. Can you pay that for me so I can still stay here so the boys will have a place to come and visit me at? Wanted me to still pay his bills for him to live in the house and do nothing. And so I told him, "Mm, I don't know about that. And I got it with my caseworker myself. My caseworker was like, you know, This is kind of weird because he keeps calling up here for different things. And he's even asked us to take your name off of the voucher. She said, but I can't do that because the voucher is under your name. Like you would have to willingly give it up before I could give it to him. I said, well, I'm not doing that. I said, what do I got to do to get his name off of it? And so she walked me through the process. She helped me get up with the manager of the housing place that we were at. And he had been telling her the exact same thing. And this is when I finally started really being honest about what was really going on and what had really happened over the last 10 years. And nobody knew about it. But whenever I told them what was going on, they were like, we could see that. We could see that. Um, Because... There was one point in time where I actually had one of my bosses call the police department because she hadn't seen me in several weeks after I walked off that one job because she hadn't seen me or the boys in several weeks. So she was concerned about our safety and that we may be being held hostage, basically. And so when the abuse and stuff and all that started really coming out, that's when everybody started really seeing him for who he really is. And the next thing I know, the office manager has put an eviction notice on him and has said that he owes back rent. I think this happened in like October, November. She said he would have to owe the full back rent from January on because that's when our lease renewed. And he had lied about the whole situation. And I had been gone since March. I left him in March. So... She got him evicted. He had 10 days to get out. owed her almost five grand in back rent. Got him taken off of my section eight and the food stamps and the Medicaid and stuff. So I could get that stuff for the boys because here I am leaving him at 29 years old. And I've never lived a life on my own. I've not really been able to see what it's like to be an adult without parental guidance or a husband or kids or any of that. So through my twenties, I didn't live a typical 20 year old life. I didn't go party and I've never even been to a bar. I mean, I just, cause I was at home raising my kids. So this time it's like, I'm 29, but yet I just turned 18 in a sense because now I'm out on my own and I've got to figure out how to do all these things on my own because up until this point, I've either had my mom telling me every step to make or him telling me every step to make. To this day, I still struggle with even simple decision-making because so much of my life was decided for me in one way or the other that I've never been asked what I want. So now even whenever it comes to simple things like what's for dinner, I I struggle with because I've never had anybody ask me what I want. So I've never had that time to sit down and think about what I wanted for myself or out of my life or anything. So at this age, you know, where most people are probably just getting married buying their first house, things like that. I'm the lowest on the totem pole. I still to this day have never bought my own house. Um, All the back and forth. And the one minute I was the greatest person, the next minute I was the worst. It took such a toll on me that I had to quit working. And my therapist had even said like, even now, she will not sign off for me to go to work. Absolutely not. Because the abuse and the verbalization was so bad that I get triggered by damn near anything and everything, to be honest. Um, I'm finding out new triggers every day. And there was one point that was really traumatic because like, within two or three days after this happened is when I quit working. He actually went behind my back to the pharmacy and picked up our children's asthma and allergy medication that they need. Um, Went behind my back and picked it up before I could get to it. So here my boys are, do not have the medications that they're required. Their dad goes behind my back, gets it and is now holding it hostage and is refusing to give it up unless I come to the house by myself to get it. Which, At this point, absolutely not. It's not going to happen because you've done put a bruise on my arm and grabbed me. You've thrown a big ass thing of coffee at my car and tried to reach through my car window with the boys in the car. Like, I'm not coming to you by myself. No way. So while I was at work, my dad was like, don't worry about it. I'll go take care of it. Me and your grandma will figure it out. They ended up having to call the law to come there and get the medication from him. And the police officer that came there was like, I can't make you give them the medication. However, if you refuse to, I'm going to have to file a report with CPS because this is medical neglect. Like you're withholding medication that your child needs. You can't do that. And he ends up giving him the medicine, but he threw it at him. He opened up, ripped open all the bags and threw it at him. And after that day, I was like, no, I can't. I can't do it. I couldn't do it. And not be there for the boys the way the boys needed to be. This needed to be my full-time focus because of everything that was going on. And luckily at this time, I had the support of my family again. And my best friend in the world had my back. He actually... Helped me leave initially. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have been able to leave initially. And he's coming to me. my best friend's like, you know, don't worry about it. I'll help you take care of the boys. Like, you need to focus on taking care of them and getting this stuff straight because you have got over 10 years worth of shit that you need to unpack and figure out and see where you're at and where the boys are at. And so that's basically what I've been doing for the last three or four years is just focusing me. On me and my sons. And they're finally in school properly. Um, He doesn't get involved in anything. And it's quite sad because the boys have excelled in school. They actually skipped a grade when they first started going there. They moved them both up a grade. They're both extremely smart. They're autistic, but they're extremely smart. And they make straight A's. My oldest son is getting into playing the violin. My youngest loves to sing and things like that. But he's missing out on all of that stuff. He doesn't participate in any of it. But yet, when I reach out to try to co-parent with him and say, hey, this is what the boys have got going on, whatever, I get threats, I get cussed at, I get yelled at, I get, well, I want more time with them. But yet, you're not showing up for anything at all it's still the same it's still the same
1: and how are you feeling about your recovery process and you know you go to therapy but when it comes to triggers and everything, are you someone who's like, I want this done. I want this recovery done right now. I want to, you know, why isn't this happening faster? Or are you just like, no, this is going to take time. I'm going to, I'm just one day at a time. How do you go through the ups and downs of the recovery process? Because nothing is going to be linear here.
0: No. To begin with, um, It was very, very hard. It was very difficult, especially um, not working. That was very hard for me because I've been working since I was 15. I was raised that you have to work for everything you have. And so for me not to work and have to 100% rely on somebody else, especially whenever it comes to not just my life, but my kids, that's been really, really tough because I've never been a hundred percent reliant on somebody yes my ex made me as reliant as he could but at least I had that freedom of like I was saying earlier the escape of being able to go to a job outside of the house but um it's it's been tough to begin with uh it would I would react there's a lot of threats and a lot of very very nasty comments said Um, And it took me a while to accept the fact that um, this is something that I'm going to deal with every day for the rest of my life. I have the type of PTSD that does not go away. And it's going to take years to process and get through. And I'm honestly proud of where I'm at, given the fact that I'm still being exposed to him. Because, mind you, we do still have joint custody. But the only time that I really communicate with him is through email, um, other than in mediation or if it's some kind of emergency type situation. I limit my communication with him as much as possible because the more I communicate with him, the more he feeds into it and it just snowballs. But it's been hard to accept the fact that it's going to take a long time for me to even start healing. and. I have to have therapy once a week, every week, but I have to be in constant contact with my therapist and thank God I have like the best therapist on the freaking planet because she specializes in domestic violence situations and she um, also dealt with it personally in her life. So she very much, she very much gets it. And I have to be in constant contact with her even throughout the week when we don't have appointments, just because, like I said, I'm still exposed to him. Um, We're still going through the court system. Like I told you, you know, last time we talked, we got an upcoming court date on the 25th. Um, And it's been it's it's been a struggle. It's been an uphill battle, especially Trying to get people to pay attention and it's much harder for DV victims that haven't dealt with physical abuse, but yet their abuser abused them in other ways that you don't always see. And to me, in my opinion, I would have much, I know some people may say this is wrong or they don't agree with it and that's fine, but I've been through every type of abuse you can think of. And I would much rather have him put hands on me than to repeatedly say the things that he said to me for over a decade, because those bruises, those issues take a lot longer to heal. And it's the mental scars that you don't see that cause the most issues. It very much feels like the best way I can describe dealing with this type of abuser it's like being in a soundproof room screaming your head off where nobody can hear you. That's that's the frustration you feel. Like, because I just had a conversation with our mediator the other day because she called me and asked me, you know, what's, what's bringing us back to court this time? And I told her and she's like, well, have you reported these issues? Like, these are safety concerns. Like, who have you reported? And I'm like, I have reported myself, their doctors have reported, my providers have reported, their teachers have reached out and reported like, but nothing is being done. And she said, well, why do you think that is? I said, honestly, because our system is not built to handle somebody like him. It's like, if you're not physically abused, the system doesn't know what to do with it. Because there's more options for somebody that has been physically abused versus somebody that hasn't because it takes a lot more to prove that there is abuse there because y'all see it. And she's like, you know, you got a point and you're exactly right. And it's very difficult, especially whenever you're dealing with somebody that's never going to change.
1: And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone, what would it be? I will
0: say this. I have heard a lot of people say, well, if that had happened to me, I would have done X, Y, and Z. And that's easy to say when you've never been in it, when you've never dealt with it. It's a totally different ball game when you're in it because it's not like these people, and I can't say men because there's women out there that's just like it. It's not like that these people Come out on the first day, swinging full force with a home run, devaluing you, love bombing. It's not all happening on the first day. You may not even see that stuff within the first couple of months. It takes time. And eventually, by the time you see them for who they really are, it's too late. He's done got you. They done got you. In some way or form, they done trapped you. So it's not something you see automatically so I would say you know if you know somebody that is dealing with this type of situation like don't give up on them don't give up on them don't say well you should do x y and z and if it was me I would do x y and z because it's different when you're in it it's way different when you're in it so just Be mindful if you know somebody that's in it and just support them and be there for them as much as you can be. And I will say this as a last thing, if you don't mind, if you're dealing with the family court system, don't give up. Do not give up if you're dealing with this and you're dealing with it. The key is documentation. Document everything because if it's not documented, it didn't happen. That's the rule of thumb to follow. Even the most smallest things. Like I even document down to what my kids ate for dinner because they have dietary issues. Just document everything. And it is an uphill battle. It is not easy. But don't give up either. And stand up for what you want and what your kids need.
1: So we're here at the end. And what everyone doesn't know is that you've been holding an unlit cigarette and a lighter for this whole entire time. And I just think I noticed
0: one, but I'm oh, I didn't trying. even, I didn't
1: even notice that. You, I'm, you I, one. I'm
0: trying to quit, but it's to the point where my therapist ain't even agreeing with me trying to quit just because of everything going on.
1: Oh, well, I was just about to say, I didn't even see you even have one cigarette. So, <laughs> um, light it up right now if you need to do it. And, <laughs> <laughs> I you know just really want to thank you for being here and sharing your story and you know you've been through a lot. You know, you say I've been through a lot for 10 years, but you've been but you've been through a lot for 29 years. So, you know, everyone here has listened to your life and you know, is giving you a big hug and, you know, you said that you're proud of yourself and everyone here is listening today is proud of you too. And, you know, you, you might be 29 years old, but you still have your whole life ahead of you to live for yourself for the first time. And I think everyone today is happy that you're at this place, that you're doing the work, that, you know, you are focusing on you, focusing on your kids and seeing your kids thrive. And that, you know, you you did a really good job today telling your story, being very clear And so many people are going to be helped by, you know, everything that you said today in sharing how you were feeling all the little nuances and scenarios of abuse and how you maneuvered through them, why you made the decisions you made. And for people that have never been through abuse, they'll hear your story and understand, you know, why people stay and the different types of things that Go into it, and I'm I'm just really proud of you. You know, coming in here today and just kind of you, you just went. You, you you knew your story I the first time I spoke to you. You know, you knew your story back and forth, like uh, like the back of your hand of all of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to come across. And I just can't thank you enough for just being you and. Everyone, you know, got to learn who Zoe was today and now I'm rambling, but just a really big thank you for for being here with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you once again, Zoe, for being here with us today and for everyone listening. If you want to be a guest on our show, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. dot com. top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page and there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at or fill out our guest form and press the submit button and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at NarcissistApocalypse.com have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, you'll see a support group button, and when you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you, and you can validate other survivors too and make a lot of wonderful friends on there. so if you need support, please do join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They, they have every phone number, email address, web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And at Shelter Movers, they help survivors of domestic violence, course of control, transition to a better and safer life. They are currently just a Canadian company, but looking to expand into the United States. It's a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence, course of control. It's an interesting part of the escape process. They help you get out into safety, get your things into storage. All of your belongings get put into storage and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's show, for today's survivor story. So for myself and Zoe, we hope you have a good night.